Disrupting Japan, Episode 7. Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. Today, we sit down with a couple of glasses of wine and have a talk with Taku Hirata of PTIX. It's an honest and heartfelt discussion about how he ended up being an entrepreneur because, frankly, he had no other choices. We talk about the importance of a support network, not so much in business, but in your personal life. Now, for those of you who don't know,、uh, Taku is the founder of PTIX. It's a rapidly growing event ticketing and promotions platform that is expanding very rapidly, not only here in Japan, but in Singapore and in America, particularly on the East Coast. Now, Taku is really an amazing guy.、Uh, he's someone that had a career. That most people would kill for. And he sat down and looked at his future, which was pretty much guaranteed, and was terrified by it. So, this is a guy who walked away from a very comfortable, executive, fast track existence into the maw of grossly underfunded entrepreneurship. And he's doing great.、Um, he's got a lot to teach all of us, quite frankly. So, rather than have me continue the introduction, let's get right to the interview. I'm sitting here with Taku Hirata of PTIX. Cheers. Cheers. The event ticketing platform, which, you know, every time I try to describe somebody else's company, I get it horribly wrong. <laughs> so, I think you got it right, though. Why don't you explain what it is?、Uh, PTIX is a,、um, we're an event management platform, mobile ticketing platform. And we started out in May of 2011 out of Tokyo. We now have three offices,、uh, the biggest one being Tokyo, obviously, but also in Singapore and New York City. So we're about 30 plus people right now. Do you have a specific market focus? Because, I mean, that's,、um, there's a lot of players in that space. I mean,、yeah. Eventbrite in the, in the US,、Absolutely. a lot of local companies here, Doorkeeper. Uh, Meetup's another one, right? Yeah, and there used to be more. t h a t first you, I started out, I think back then. In 2011, in Japan alone, I, I, I think there were about 15 of them. Wow. Similar、uh, companies, including some big ones like Recruit、um, and Yahoo would later come into the game.、Um, and worldwide, I think there were about like 60 or 70 similar players.、Uh, well, what are you guys doing? You must be doing something right if you're one of the fewer and fewer men standing. <laughs> so, what, what, do, what do you do that's, that's different? That's a Good but tough question.、Uh, I wish I knew. I'd like to say. <laughs> That's a great answer, actually. No, I, I respect that tremendously.、Um, I, I think a couple of things. One, from the get go,、uh, we built a good UI, a UX. We were always very careful about that. But also, we weren't like you know, most of the other startups and in in in, you know, our competitors, I think. A lot of them would just build a product and. You know, without if you build it, they will come type of attitude. It、uh, does strike me as one of those, those products that seems simple when you first think about yeah, it. Yeah, but it's, it's actually very difficult in terms of marketing and customer acquisition. There is no clear marketing channel. It's not like you can spend a million dollars on Google or Facebook ads and just assume that you'll be reaching out to many, many event organizers, which are, these are very hard to identify, especially online. So, did you, did you target a particular niche or are you still trying to go, go wide? I mean, are you targeting like music events or, or 
industry you, you trade know, the, shows? Yeah, or? the interesting thing is when we first started, you know, I come from a music industry background, actually. I started oh, I at Sony Music, was head of music at Amazon, and I launched iTunes in Japan. So we always thought that, you know, we had the music segment in mind. We thought that, like, indie music artists would flock to our site and start using us right away, just like that. But it didn't really happen. Oh. And remember, this is 2011, right after the earthquake. Like, getting together and having fun was just not really encouraged at the oh, time. Oh, so this was still in Japan? Yeah, this is still in Japan when we first started. So, you know, we had a good team of, we call them evangelists. Right. We made an effort to go out into communities and attend events and build relationships. So a lot of one-on-one doing things that don't scale. No, I mean, it's, it's hard. It's yeah. hard, man. In the beginning, uh, you just, it takes time. And I think Eventbrite will tell you the same thing. It just takes time. There is no clear, again, no clear marketing channel. Uh, there's no winning formula there. You just have to build relationships and start there. Um, I see you guys everywhere in Japan. Mm-hmm. When I was in Singapore a few months ago, mm-hmm. you guys were all over. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys are doing great in the States as well. Mm-hmm. Do you have a different go-to-market strategy for each market, or do you just kind of figure it out and pivot as you go forward in each market? We try out different things. You know, uh, To tell the truth, Singapore is amazing. Uh, we started doing well very early on. They, they uh, love you there. They really, yeah. <laughs> I've heard nothing but good uh, things. You know, we're in New York City, and the U.S. is a little tougher. Um, but in the end, we try out different things, but it just comes down to the same thing. It's about networking and building relationships, uh, building the relationships and building that trust and going into these communities, building relationships so that when it's time for somebody to hold an event, PTIX is the first you know, platform that comes to mind. Now, you when know. you're talking about building trust, are mm-hmm. you talking about building it on a very personal level between the organizers and your representatives or is it building it as a as a brand i I think um as we start to scale uh, the approach becomes a little different but in the early days it's really building those one-to-one it's really personal that's really personal and what happens though if you get an event that let's say has 100 attendees uh, there's always a number of people within those 100 who will hold an event in the future so if you provide a good ticketing experience through PTIX to the attendees, chances are that the one it's time for them to hold an event, they'll, they'll use us. So that, you know, the initially, I mean, in terms of numbers, you know, 90% of the events using PTIX were these events that were acquired by our, by our people, by our right. team. But eventually that organic acquisition channel start to, starts to grow if you do it well. So I can, you know, today I can say that over 70% of all events on PTIX in Japan come organically, you know, without us really going out and meeting these people. That's fantastic. Mm. Now, I noticed one thing that you guys have that that does seem quite unique was your um, Mm -hmm. color sync technology. Yes. And that's, again, why don't don't you explain it so I don't butcher it, but it's fascinating. Thank you. Um, uh, Color sync is a new technology uh, that helps you to if you're the event organizer it helps you to check in all the attendees very securely and quickly we came up with this idea through a painful experience that we had in the past with a big event it was about 30,000 people it was a music festival in Osaka uh, and we had to securely check in 30,000 people within like an hour 
Wow. Or so. And uh, at the time, I mean, still <clears throat> today, we use it, uh, the QR codes as, as your ticket. So we had all these scanner boxes out at the gate, and, you know, the sunlight is getting in the way, and this or that, and it's just very painful. It's, it's a harrowing experience. Yeah. When, when you're, we, we had five guys, maybe, but <clears throat> you have to scan these things very quickly. Well, five guys a, trying to check in 30,000 doesn't sound like, like yeah. the math is working in your and, favor And then when, when, when we saw that, and then our guys are starting to talk about, okay, we need to produce more of these uh, scanner boxes. Why don't we outsource this to, to some manufacturer in Taiwan or China? And, you know, we could sell those scanner boxes through um, e-commerce and et cetera. So I said, guys, stop. Let's just... It's crazy. It's not going to scale. So we need to come up with a, a secure, quick, accurate way to check in people at the door that doesn't really re- rely on additional hardware. You know, it needs to rely on something that uh, people already have, and that obviously is the mobile device. So ColorSync is, um, let's say you're the organizer at the door. You've got your iPhone in front of you. It's flashing colors, red, blue, green yellow in certain intervals, in certain patterns. An attendee with the right ticket, the correct ticket, will be holding up his or her ticket, and it'll be flashing in the same colors, in so the same the, intervals. So the guest's mobile device mm-hmm. and the organizer's mobile device will flash colors in the same in sequence. In the same sequence. Together. Yeah, and, and that sequence is updated. You know, one pattern will be very different in, 10 seconds later, so you can't really replicate it. Um, that color sequence is randomly updated. Every, and you, you can check yeah. in a whole group of people that way too, yeah. right? And, and the way it works is we've, done, we've been doing a lot of experimentation is that, you know, you ask, let's say you've you got 100 people lined up, you know, for the first 20, you, you tell them, hey, you know, show us your phones, and if all 20 are fine, you just let them in. But if there's one guy who has a different sequence you sort of accost them and and say hey what's up um, yeah, yeah, let yeah. me see your ticket so it's very quick it's like boom 20 people all right next 20 people boom so it's it's just amazingly fast so it's more than 10 times as fast as trying to oh, scan someone with code absolutely it's, absolutely it's awesome um you know it's still in closed beta uh, but we're going to gradually release it out into, into the real world and then hopefully by next year it'll be the default ticketing uh ticketing format for, for all PTX events. Why? Cool. It's because it's just so simple. So I know, simple. When I saw that, it was one mm. of those those technologies that is, mm-hmm. what's the word? Sort of, duh. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, and I mean that in the best possible way. Yeah, when you it see is. it, it's like, well, yeah, that's the obvious solution yeah. that no one ever thought of before. Yeah, it is. So I, I, I love it. I, I mean, I, it's still, it's sort of like a proposal, you know, this is the way it should be. And we're going to, you know, fine-tune everything we're working out all the kinks right now uh and it'll be ready pretty soon next year probably cool i look yeah. forward to that one you once said that you don't consider ptix to be a japanese company what mistakes do you see japanese companies mm-hmm. making I, what were the mistakes they were making you didn't want to make at ptix well you know we come from amazon the co-founders and i uh i joined amazon was it 2001 this is like when they first came into japan yeah. It was very much an American company operating in Japan, meaning it's all English, many nationalities, a lot of Americans, obviously. I just like that atmosphere. And you know, I, I think as a team, any strategic direction 
we uh, all of us understood directly because we all could we would converse in English. You know, Jeff Bezos is saying this. Uh-huh. It would it, it didn't need to go through an interpreter. Now I've been at another company, literally where you know top Japanese management. Each and this is when Tim Cook came for. This is at Apple. Tim right. Cook. Uh, for some strategy discussions. Literally, I walk into the meeting room and each and every top manager on the Japanese side has his, his personal own, interpreter. His own interpreter? Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Said, this is absolutely crazy. These people are not understanding what Tim is saying. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're losing a lot of it along the way. I saw it firsthand. And they're all, they're all getting slightly different takes on it anyway, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. And... Uh, so I, you know, we sort of liked the way Amazon had started out, and you know, uh, and then at the same time, you, you know this, Rakuten, yeah. our biggest competitor at the time, and still is, they had aspirations to get outside of Japan, but they were really struggling as a culture, a company culture. Yes, because yeah. it was very Japanese. Yeah. Well, they've also gone all English all the time now, right? Yeah, and you know, people ridicule that, but I don't. I don't no intent to ridicule that, but it seemed a little funny at the time mm-hmm. to most people. But we just saw how painful it is to try to become an international company after you're so big in Japan. So you wanted to start out on the right foot. Right. From day one, we wanted to build a fundamental culture that is very multicultural and multinational so that we wouldn't suffer. You know, we were big dreamers, but you know, in five years and ten years, when we become big, it's not much of an issue at that point. You wouldn't have to like try to retrofit it yeah, into we, your culture. We wouldn't have to have these. Uh, well, listen, uh, you worked for uh, a number of pretty large mm-hmm. uh, technology companies: Amazon, mm-hmm. Apple, Sony. Mm-hmm. Did you always know you wanted to start your own thing, or was, no. this, was there some trigger that inspired you that said very specifically? Okay. Well, what was it? No. <laughs> I had no idea I would be doing anything like this. You know, we were on a good career tra- trajectory very early on. You know, I was, uh, I think I was a senior manager at Amazon when I was 29 or something, you know, leading a That's team of, yeah. you know, 20, 25, 25 yeah. people. And at that point, I could, we could sort of see beyond the horizon what was going to happen to us. 10 years down the line, 15 years down the line. Okay, I'm going to probably become a VP uh, at a you know, a foreign subsidiary, and it be like I don't want to say easy, but it, it'll be very comfortable. Not uh, challenging, or not, you'd be bored, or yeah, what? I mean, you move from I we know many many people like that move as a head of this company to from this subsidiary to this subsidiary. I, I could see that happening, and that was sort of horrifying <laughs> to, to us to see. Now, to to see exactly what we're going to be like in 10 years, for 15 years. In our youth, huh. not, being able to predict everything was just horrifying, huh. I remember. And, and this is, and my co-founders were, I think we were in a Starbucks on the first floor of the Amazon office, and we just started to talk about that. Hey, we know exactly what's going to happen in 10 years. What do you think? And... Uh, that's when we first started to get together and talk about things. How do we how do we want to live our lives going forward? Isn't it? So a group of you just decided you didn't like the path you were on. I mean, it was great. Don't get me wrong. We loved Amazon. We yeah. absolutely. It, that was my business school. That was my MBA. That experience was wonderful. And it's, to this day, we carry everything we learned there. Um, 
but you know you only live once i guess and and we needed a new challenge we didn't even know what to do you know i think i have a on Evernote or something, we have a list of ideas, and they're all sort of like stupid ideas. But um, we knew we, we just wanted to jump ship, and you know, realization that it just okay, wasn't what you wanted to do. Yeah, what are we doing this for? Um, we need to build and operate a platform of our own. Yeah. Uh, when you when you made the big leap from from Amazon and I mean let's face it mm-hmm. you know the the career path you are, you were on is not a bad one no not at all so when you made that leap did your wife did your friends did your family were they supportive were they surprised supportive in the beginning okay sure do it my father is a musician he's a violinist all right so he he you know independence and being able to make your own decisions. A little bit of a bohemian. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, I, I think you know, he was a little proud of seeing his son take that step. But then, you know, the ensuing years, the struggle, <laughs> the, I, you know, money and hours. Uh, the actual reality the of The reality of it, I think they, nobody realized it's going to be that hard. I didn't know either. Yeah. Well, so, I think if most people actually understood how hard it would be, mm-hmm. no one would ever go I don't, down this road. No, I don't recommend <laughs> I don't it to think anybody. I would have. You know, when somebody asks me, hey, should, I, should I start my own thing? I, it's like, well, probably not is my first reaction, is my first answer. It's damn hard. You know, you, you're probably going to shave off several years of, from your life expectancy. <laughs> but in the end, if you still need to do it, then you should. But if it's like, hmm, I don't know, then don't. <laughs> well, I, I think that's a really interesting point. There's mm-hmm. a lot of uh, being a startup founder has become quite fashionable yeah. these days in Japan. And it, mm-hmm. it didn't used to be that way mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. What advice do you have if someone... What would I say? What, what, is, yeah, what, what do you say to, to the Japanese who want to start something now? What are the mistakes you see a lot of young Japanese making when they're wanting to start a company? Well, the, the, the biggest one is that they, th- they think it's easy. They think it's going to, you know, you somehow, all right, lean startups, the cost of starting a company, sure, it's, it's, it's a lot lower than, you know, when yeah. we, compared to when we first started. Um, but they think it's going to be a cakewalk. And it's really so they've, they've, they've read the lean startup, they've seen the social network, yeah. they think they know what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. You need to understand that relationships will be broken along the way. You, yeah. you might get divorced. I mean, it's, it's awful. It's going. To, it's probably going to be. I mean, I'm sure. You know, maybe one out of a million. They, it's a cakewalk, but usually it's not. Right for 99 percent of startups, I would say very specifically, very specifically, either you've saved a lot of money, or you have friends, relatives family that you can rely on through the hard times let's face it you, you you'll need that support you you do structure yeah um whether it be taking care of the kids once in a while because you can't go home or money right you need to borrow yeah. money from your relatives and just plead on your knees we all did that and, and unless you have that hotline right there when uh, when you need it I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. You guys moved to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And now you, you yourself have roots there. Mm-hmm. 
But there is a growing trend of Japanese startups moving to mostly San Francisco, but some yep. to New York.、Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a good thing? What kind of companies do you think can benefit from moving there, and which ones do you think should、um, just stay in Japan for the moment? I, I can only speak a, a, about our experience.、Uh, for us, it was definitely the right thing to do. We were a Japanese corporation in the beginning, and, and along the way, after we launched Ptix, and when it was time to raise funds from both the U.S.,、uh, we went through what's called a triangular merger and built a parent. U.S. entity on top of, you know, we we did that because we wanted investors from both the U.S. and Japan. Number one, at the time at least, no U.S. VC would invest in the Japanese KK. Yeah, right. Yep. This is you know, 2011. Maybe it happens a bit recently, but back then definitely not.、Um, and we, we knew that we wanted international talent in the U.S., Singapore, where around the globe. So for those two reasons specifically, we did that. I think you need to do it for the right reasons.、Um, What are the right reasons?、Uh, for us, it was those two things right in the beginning: investors and talent. But I also know of several startups from Japan who set up a Delaware entity, but they were not able to attract any U.S. investors at all. But they're a Delaware corporation, so you sort of. Cut out the Japanese VCs, certain Japanese VCs as well. So they're like stuck in the middle. So are Japanese VCs still reluctant to in- invest without in any validation from a good U.S. investor? I think it's extremely difficult for them to jump on. Okay, w- without it. So they'll so, be part of a round investing in a U.S. corp, but、yeah. they won't lead it. And, and so in that、mm. case, I think it actually hurt them. I've seen that. With a, you know, a number of startups, and I thought it was, it's dreadful. It, it's, it's absolutely you know, terrible. So I think what you need to do is really take a good, hard look at yourself and ask yourself: Am I going to be able to attract a good VC or investor from Silicon Valley or the U.S. and Japan? And what is the right way to do it? Validation. So the validation, either from.、Um People in the industry or existing customer base. Yeah, or, I mean, if you have yeah, revenues, you're well. That's the ultimate value. Right, that's the ultimate, it, right? <laughs> But if you're pre-revenue, then then you need some sort of okay guarantee or tangible validation. I think you spend a lot of time going back and forth between the U.S. and Japan.、Mm-hmm. What do you think that people outside Japan misunderstand most about Japanese startups? The world is really becoming the same,、um, and especially so right now with the platforms and smartphones become everything be- becoming universal.、Uh, people seem to dwell on the differences. Okay, there might be some differences in the way people pay for things, for example,、okay. or how physical goods are delivered. But as long as you take care of those, the rest I, I feel like it's more or less the same. And I I, I don't as a As a startup entrepreneur, I really don't want to dwell on or really focus on the differences from region to region. Do you think that the people in the startup community in America you interact with、mm-hmm. have an accurate perception of the startup community in Japan? They don't know. I guess would be well. We're, we're they, hoping they don't come here. <laughs> you know, they don't come here enough. Okay.、Uh, they make a lot of hi- wrong hiring decisions. For example. I've seen, I've seen that happen. You know, they have they build、uh, a certain big company, auction company in the U.S. When, when they came in, I, I just feel、oh, like they built the wrong team. Famously, for, yes, yes、yeah. right, that one. 
But if you're able to identify the right team, I feel like... When, when you're talking to people in America, mm-hmm. what do they think about the Japanese startup ecosystem? Or do they think anything at all about it? And, it seems, and vice versa. Yeah, it seems to me... The perception, the general perception for an American startup is that Japan is a very cool place, a cool market that you absolutely want to be in sometime in the future, but just, they just don't, they don't know how. It, it, they always dwell on, the, again, the differences. It must be so different from the U.S., right? Right. So, so they still, <laughs> ironically, in this, this age of, like, Internet mm-hmm. and instantaneous communication, Japan is still viewed as some kind of exotic Galapagos market. Or, yeah, <laughs> Galapagos. Galapagos. But yeah, I, I, I think I, that's the general perception. I just, huh. I, I might, I, I, I've been preaching that. No, it's probably what works in the U.S. should theoretically work in the in, in Japan. This is something I've I've said as well. I mm-hmm. think, I, I mean, I, I think ninety percent of what works in the U.S. will work in Japan, and yeah. vice versa. But I think what we're up against is there are a number of people who've made a whole little industry mm-hmm. of telling people, no, no, Japan is completely different. I, exactly. You need to go through me. I'll explain the right. strange weird and culture we can, to we you. We know names, too, right? People <laughs> yeah, yeah, who do that. We won't mention anything. Um, I think you really need to focus on the universal. Jeff Bezos, my, my demigod, right? He, yeah. he always said, there's nobody in, on, Earth, on planet Earth who is saying, who would ever say, Oh geez, I I wish my product would be delivered later than sooner. I wish uh-huh. you know this product was more expensive. You know, I wish Amazon had fewer products. Like those, you need to identify the universal truths. Wow. If if you have a good perception of what those are, theoretically, it should work anywhere in the world, right? I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of that the the value proposition. Mm-hmm. Is universal. It and should be. Right? Maybe you have to tweak the positioning and marketing a bit. Communication. Communication yeah. aspect. Mm-hmm. And that's all it is, I think. And has that been your experience at, at PTIX, bringing it into all these different markets? I, I think we're still in pursuit. I, we, we don't know all the answers, but we're always asking ourselves. I, I, like, at least for me, I always tell my teams in Singapore or in New York or in, or in Tokyo, please don't dwell on the differences. Please don't come to me about, this is why Singapore is different. I don't care really about the differences. We're still, as a young startup, we should be pursuing the universal truths. Mm-hmm. That is common among all event organizers and attendees across the globe. And we still haven't figured those out yet. We'd rather focus on those than the local differences. And if someone figures out a value add in Singapore, it probably adds just as much value exactly. in New York. Exactly. You know, like Reed Hoffman's, what was his golden rule? You need to build things that will impact 10% or more of your customer base. Mm-hmm. If it's 0.2, it's not worth it. And when people start dwelling on the local differences and, you know, ask for resources on those things, might be used by a couple of, you know, customers in a particular market, but nowhere else. It's a waste, really. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's distracting? What, yeah, or? it's distracting. It is, what is a startup? A startup is a company with limited resources. Limited resources mean time, money, and people. So rather than you know, spending time on you know, local differences, I think you really need to really focus on core truths. And, and that's my philosophy, at least. All I right. hope 
it's the right philosophy to have. Well, it makes sense. Right. Yeah. It really does. Yeah. So and it's Amazon, also, you know, I mean, I, it also has a side effect, I think, of, mm-hmm. of getting people focused on the, the positives, mm-hmm. where differences aren't, I mean, they're not necessarily negative, but mm-hmm. they probably sort of tend that way, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So over the last five or six years, the, the startup community, the startup ecosystem in Japan mm-hmm. has really, it's transformed. You can barely recognize it. Yeah. Some good, some bad, but... Some what, stupid. Yeah. Some, yeah, yeah, some stupid, some overpriced. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but what do you see as the most positive trends right now? Uh, you know, we, you mentioned that it's become a little fashionable. I mean, maybe it's a good thing that people are starting to realize, okay, how do I... I don't want to, you know, work for the same company for 50 years uh, like my forefathers. It, it's, it's okay to take that jump, perhaps. So it's becoming more socially acceptable? That it's, and, and you know, people have been preaching that Japan never accepts a failure and we need to change that. And they've been doing it for four or five years. That, okay, maybe it's, it's changing as well. That maybe f- small failures are acceptable relative to, you know, a decade ago, huh. perhaps. Well, I, I think so. I yeah. mean, I, I, I see that as well. Mm-hmm. Small steps. Yeah. But I, I think, like you mentioned, especially among uh, younger generation, people in their 20s mm-hmm. will view failure very differently mm-hmm. from people in, say, their 50s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you go to a bookstore, there's so many books that say... You know, literally, the title is like, it's okay to fail, or you know, failure is leads to success. And all well, these, the Ice Sun, our, our mutual friend, has just yeah, published a book exactly. on that exact subject. And, and so that is changing, but it's got to, right? <laughs> Things are so dismal on a, on a macro level that many more startups need to come out and build yeah. new things. Well, that's, I mean, I think that is the beauty of sort of startup math, if mm-hmm. you will, is that. Even if 99% of the startups end in failure, mm-hmm. that's enough. Yeah. That 1%, that's enough to kind of get Japan Absolutely. back on the right track Absolutely. again. Absolutely. Even today, right? There's some big news with KDDI uh, acquiring all these startups. Yeah, that was surprising. Yeah. And that's great, I think. You know? Well, that is, there, there are a lot more, there's a lot more M&A activity than there, well, really, than there ever has been mm-hmm. in Japan. Mm-hmm. And the IPO market doesn't seem to be too bad either, yeah. I think. Maybe it's a little bubbly right now, but I think it's a great trend. I mean, it, it certainly gives me hope. Well, I think it's, I mean, I, I agree with you. Bubbly mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, valuations are high. Sure. But I, I think, and I'm, after the 2000 crash, mm-hmm. the startup ecosystem just, it, it disappeared. It was mm-hmm. wiped out mm-hmm. entirely. Mm-hmm. My sense now is that if we see another crash, when we see another crash, sure. <laughs> I think the ecosystem that's built up over the last 10 years will survive that. At the same time, you, there are several startups that I know of in Japan who mm-hmm. really look at you know, the, the big Silicon Valley startups and they say it's okay to burn seven hundred or $800,000 a month. Or $2 million a month even. Well, yeah. And there, those, are, there are certainly some startups that won't survive it. Right. Uh, and you know, those might not make it, but... For the most part, I think Japanese startups tend to be a little more conservative in their mm. approach, a little more patient. Uh, and that includes us. We're very patient. That's got to be... I don't know the 2000. I was, what, 24, 25 years old. So okay. I have to believe that that's a little different, probably. To, to me, it really does feel different. Mm-hmm. 
the investments are much smaller. They're more distributed among larger numbers of companies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more people making them. Yeah. There's more viable companies coming out of it. Yeah. You know. No. There's a lot of there's a lot of nonsense too, but there believe me, they were <laughs> you should have seen well, some of the stuff going I on mean, in two thousand. It was <laughs> it was really stupid back in two thousand, wasn't it? Yeah, well, you know, but that that's I've gotta say, this is a thing that the Japanese often don't understand about mm-hmm. Silicon Valley. Most of the startups there are pretty stupid too. Yeah. yeah you know. Yeah. <laughs> we you know, over here we only see the really the ones that make it. Absolutely. <laughs> right? I mean it's the same in New York. You know, a lot of startups that I meet, like, what? You're trying to sell dog food to cats? You know, it's just <laughs> really... Good luck with that. <laughs> um, Keep in touch. Let me know how it goes. Yeah, there's... You know. Well, it's a good thing the, the math works out that 99% can still fail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, well, listen, this, this mm-hmm. has been great. Is there anything you want to talk about? I've been kind of driving this whole discussion, so... No, these are great questions. I, I, you have another question? <laughs> oh, I, I can give you, uh, believe me, I've got a bunch of sort of these random think questions that sure, are, um, sure. okay, I'll just toss one at you. So yeah. what was a decision you agonized over and it turned out you made the wrong decision? I don't know the answer to that yet. There might be <laughs> a number of candidates. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, there were some, you know, some product decisions okay. along the way. Hiring decisions, obviously. Uh, I, yeah. I won't. Yeah. No, no, no. Be but yeah, those, 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 I think we all have a couple of horror stories in that department. Yeah. We're very lucky. We made huge mistakes in a string of small to mid sized mistakes along the way, but we're still here. Well, I think, you know, I mean, it's best to make the mistakes early, right? Yeah. And, and <laughs> the, uh, the longer you wait, the cheap, the, you know, the sooner you make them, the cheaper they are. It's, it's really true. You know, they, you know, Dave McClure and everybody says this, but you need to make, continue to make mistakes. It's, it's so true. We have many, many competitors in this field. And, you know, what I always tell the team is that, okay, whenever we make a mistake, you know, guys, it's good that we made the mistake today and we've learned from it because our other competitors, they might, they're going to run into it, but they're going to run into it a year later. And <laughs> it we, will we cost them three times Exactly, and we yeah. will have moved on. The mistakes that we run into, the, the, mis- the mistakes that we make today, they probably... Experience it five years That's ago. a really interesting way of thinking mm-hmm. of it. Most people think of like valuable intellectual property as being the wonderful features and patents, but there's real no. value in the mistakes you make you too. So much more from what what doesn't go well. Yeah, it's it's really true. I don't you know every textbook says this. I'm sure, but uh, it really holds true for us. Um, you, you learn so much, and you're. And you become better in the end. As long as, it's, as the mistake is manageable, right? Well, and yeah. Then, as long as it's There's a limit to it. Um, so I like to think that as a startup, you know, it's, it's the experience of making mistakes every day. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> hey, well, listen, thanks for, for Thank coming you. in and talking to us. Thanks, I really appreciate it. It was a huge pleasure. Oh, Thank you. Excellent. And we're back. I hope you enjoyed that one. I I think Taku's had some amazing points about the importance of focusing on the similarities rather than differences. Um, And that's not only in terms of market entry and and globalization, but I think that's that's just good advice to living your life in general. It helps keep the stress and negativity down. 
I also thought he had an amazing point about how our mistakes, both personal and corporate, sometimes turn out to be our most valuable intellectual property. If you want to get in touch with Taku or see any of the links we discussed on the show, go to disruptingjapan.com and the li- all the resources will be in the show notes. And if you want to get in touch with us and have any ideas about how we can improve the show or people you think we should be talking to, send us an email at feedback at disruptingjapan.com. So until next time, this has been Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.